mine. Yeah. Waiting for it to start recording on my end. Is it recording on your end? It says recording on my end. All right. Well, I guess we'll roll with it then. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crowdcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today, we're uh, honored to be joined by the project manager of the Blue Iguana Conservation Project, Mr. Luke Harding. Luke, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. That was our pleasure. So, Luke, you want to start us off a little bit about your background, how you first got into uh, working with reptiles and what you currently do? Yeah, of course. So I was born in the UK, the United Kingdom, and from Manchester originally, but grew up in Cheshire. Um, my family weren't really into reptiles, but they were a heavy animal-loving family. They really enjoyed keeping and working with animals, especially working dogs. So kind of being around animals and even working animals was kind of something that I've done since I can remember. I kind of grew into it. Um, and then over the years, I kind of developed a passion. I wasn't really that fond of school, to be honest. So as I grew up, I kind of wanted to do something different. And that led me down the animal care industry as I left high school into college. And then that's really the age where my passion for keeping reptiles, I've had some at home, grew from a passion to start being able to potentially see that as a career route. Um, through that, I obviously went around pet shops. I was keeping a lot at home at the time. I was volunteering with different local amphibian and reptile groups. So the UK has not got that much diversity, but what we do have is pretty awesome. So that was really good experience. And then really my first step into turning this into more than just a hobby and a passion was through work experience in the zoological industry. So I was very fortunate to become an intern at Chester Zoo in my original earlier days. Um, and, you know, that was a dream come true for me. It was my childhood zoo that I'd grown up with. It's one of the biggest zoos in Europe certainly the biggest zoo in the UK, although it's a lot bigger now than it was when I was there. But, you know, I got to work across a huge range of species that just at the time weren't available. And, you know, my lifelong bucket list of things like Komodo dragons and species that were really the pinnacle of what at the time I definitely thought it was about. And in my young years, that's what it was about for me. My drive was very much the keeping and breathing of reptiles. I very much felt like that was contributing and for a greater good. And the more we could keep and breed was everything was a win, was exciting, was changing the world sort of thing. Um, and yeah, to some degree, that passion and enthusiasm is still there. Although as you evolve through the career, you, you see more that the situation is definitely more complicated than just breeding reptiles and amphibians. So yeah, I went from an intern into the zoo industry, worked at a number of different zoological collections through the UK. Um, got to be involved in a lot of in-situ conservation work in the UK with native sand lizards, a bit of work with adders, different amphibians. Um, and then as my career grew, opportunities arose and I was fortunate to get out to some in-situ projects. So work in Madagascar, um, in India at Madras Crocodile Bank for a small period of time, Africa. And then, yeah, later on in my career, the Philippines, I got to go out on the Komodo Dragon surveys, which was kind of a life goal of mine to be able to be involved with those, um, both breed them in captivity, but then to follow that up by seeing the amazing work being done in situ with them by the teams was incredible. So, yeah, and I kind of flitted in and out, and that's in a few years, really, I got a chance to be in the zoological industry and do what I loved as a keeper, worked my way up to become a curator and head of section myself. Um, be involved in lots of projects in the zoo, looking at how we can utilize our living collections for best informed conservation, but also use them obviously in their other purposes, educational tools. And then, yeah, take that passion and enthusiasm and start trying to use my skills and knowledge and share them 
in region for species, whether that be for capacity building with staff or whether it can be through some of the challenges you you can move the skill sets. And I think that's really important. And for a lot in my younger years, I never really saw how keeping animals at home could have an influence on a career or make a difference in the wild. And sometimes even keeping them within zoos, really, a lot of the time, the difference is this link between we see more people and educate more people. And often we have linked different funding sources and conservation projects. It's kind of what separates private from zoo in a lot of aspects. So um, it was really interesting to see all this crossover from all the different stages of my career to come in to be able to make a difference in the field. And yeah, in the last three years, I moved to Grand Cayman and took up the post of Blue Iguana Conservation Programme Manager with the National Trust of the Cayman Islands. Um, the Blue Iguana Cyclora Lewisii is an incredible success story of conservation optimism for anyone listening that doesn't know about it. This species was once considered the world's rarest iguana. In 2002, there was less than 25 individuals left in the world. And through the conservation efforts of what was Blue Iguana Recovery Programme, but now Blue Iguana Conservation, we have managed to bring that number up to closer to a thousand animals, which is a true story of conservation optimism, a remarkable effort on so many fronts, but massively driven by the captive breeding, head starting conservation efforts for the species. And an example of how all these different elements of it works to bring a conservation project to the point it's at now, at this tipping point where it's been so successful, but there's still so far to go. And the project really was envisioned the short term breed iguanas, save the species, move on. And it just goes to show the longevity that these projects take. There's first year, one years later, we're still here and still doing conservation work. So I want to get into the blue iguana thing. I think that's super cool. And I think that's that should take up most of what we'll talk about. But I do, before we get into that, because I think that's the meat of the conversation we're going to have. I do want to ask, because Komodo dragons are one of my favorites, what, what that was like, and just kind of go over like what it was like working with the Komodo dragons. Yeah, the, kind of my passion for dragons has been that from a kid. They're kind of one of those blockbuster species, if you're allowed to say, you know, people say, oh, reptiles don't have these Hollywood, these blockbuster species that, you know, other things have like tigers and A-listers. But for me, dragons are right up there with being able to have that effect on people. You know, they've been over-dramatized, if you will, by nature documentaries that show this unique hunting behavior that you see on certain islands in the dry season with buffaloes. But they just are so much that we didn't understand about them. And they're kind of like the last terrestrial apex reptile, really, that's still kind of dominant as the main top of the food chain on land where it lives. Um, so that's kind of where it drew from me. And then you start working with them and you actually realize they're just really big monitor lizards. Um in comparison to others but what's really interesting with them is i think that they're just so one of them species we knew so little about and we understood so little about and one where you see the involvements in science in evidence-based husbandry mm. practice over the years have meant that we've gone from these fat overweight sluggish animals in the captive environment that were genuinely being kept wrong a lot of the time to really powerful almost replicas of what we're seeing in the wild um, and really getting to go out there was amazing for me because not only to see them in the wild of the islands, it's truly the closest thing to Jurassic Park you'll still see. Um, it really was an amazing experience, but you really get a chance to see how well adapted and evolved they are to their habitat. Um, you know, in some of the islands, these animals are incredibly secretive. You don't get that good observation, which amazes me that, a, you know, a large lizard of that size can be secretive it's not something you assume because in captivity we often don't give them those choices we often have them in exhibits where they have to be out and people don't see that element of them so that's 
absolutely fascinating. And in captivity, they're amazing. You know, we've kept them so long, but there's still so much to learn about them, how to develop them. Um, and also their intelligence levels make them a great animal to work with. You know, they, they're really captivating. They're really responsive to positive reinforcement training. You can do so much with them. So yeah, they're, they're a real love affair. Um, I think for every reptile keeper, oh, I haven't met many who don't, but um, yeah, they were a goal to work with. Breeding them was amazing to be involved with. Um, yeah, they're a species that never grow old. And I would happily work with them again if any opportunities arose. And if anyone gets the chance, I can't recommend taking that enough. You, it, it's a love affair once you start. You never quite meet a lizard like them. Awesome. The So one thing, so you, you talk a lot about like zoos roles in conservation and stuff. Um, one thing I, so I do kayak tours on the side as kind of like a side gig. And one thing that they talk about a lot, because we see a lot of dolphins. I live down here in South Florida. Um, and one thing they talk about is like the difference between like dolphins that live in the wild, like their life expectancy is like 50 years as opposed to like an aquariums is only like 13. And, and so a lot of people have different opinions on zoos and aquariums. What, what are your thoughts on that kind of thing of, you know, keeping different animals, like larger animals or something like that? I think it's a it's a really interesting debate and one that's probably a podcast in itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not sitting on the fence. But I think there's, really, there's loads of arguments or discussions, I should say, I guess, but often turn to arguments about people's opinions on that. And I think it's really hard to truly measure the impact that captivity has on on different species. And I, and I think it's very species specific as to about which some species aren't suited to captivity or our ability to replicate their natural habitats is limited within the captive environment. You know, I think you see that certainly when it comes to marine mammals that we don't always understand enough to be able to do that. But even, you know, reptiles are a great example. When you move across different regions that have different climates and can't keep these animals outside and they can only keep them inside and the challenges that come with that, sometimes we just can't replicate natural diets and natural habitats, no matter how far we try, no matter how many advancements, and there's huge advancements have come over the years in husbandry knowledge, but expertise, heating and lighting that's now available. You know, we know, we know our systems for UV and heat provision have never been, been better than they currently are at the moment. And our science and technology is becoming more readily available now, such as thermal imaging and things that, you know, before were huge money or just not available are. And, um, but I, think it's it's a really difficult question to be honest with what's the best way to go i think that mm. everything should be case specific i think it should be layered in fact um it's very hard to talk about animals and not anthropomorphize them not put our emotions onto them but i think Absolutely. that's really important and i think from a person who used to work in the industry i'm not technically now but i keep animals in activity we've got to be open to suggestions open to the fact that we can evolve uh, every zoo in every industry in the world had a past so the fact that zoos maybe weren't always at the high level in the past well you know there's plenty of industries where they've evolved and times change and you develop and evolve and i think you know zoos any captive industry has been the same with that same with private keeping has evolved and improved over the years but i think we've just got to look at that be open to discussions but my main thing to people would be keep it factual you know look at the look at the evidence behind the statements because um, there's a lot we don't understand about why species do what they do in the wild why they use the areas they use while some species move and migrate big distances, not because they want to, but because there's no option through resource limitation and restrictions, it causes that. Um, so I think 
my basis is to link everything back to evidence. You know, the captive community, the zoo community, we need to be open to listen, to learn, to keep evolving and adapting with the science and evidence as it comes. And those opposed need to listen and learn as well, because, you know, whether you agree with it or not, there's a lot of species that are still here because of the captive industry as well. Um, the zoo industry, but also the private sector. There's a lot of expertise and experience. I'm not just talking about animals that have been bred in them going back, but there's species, a lot of species knowledge, certainly within our taxonomic group, the reptiles and amphibians came from the captive environment. It wasn't there with field data. So to just exclude that, you would see lots of species go. The amphibian crisis is a really good example of the power that zoos can have. There's plenty of examples in mammals and birds. And I, again, I'm not just talking about captive zoo animals going in or out, but if you look at the expertise that comes under the network that these organizations provide, that's that's really powerful and they've led to some great work and so do the funds that their gates bring in and most people who love animals if you speak to them a lot of them have been inspired by visits to zoos as well and so the power of that education and engagement can't be underestimated but there are still questions to answer and you know i i see i know a lot of people working in these industries who are passionate and driven to keep improving keep evolving and try to bring that gap to normality but there's plenty of species in captivity that live far longer than they would in the wild as well. So there's always two sides to an argument. And I, I welcome the discussion. I think we shouldn't be shying away from it. Let's have those discussions. But let's keep it factual as well, because there's a lot of people who are anti this, anti that, and have animals in cages in nature reserves in Africa that are just big cages. So when we talk about captive population management, for a lot of species, they are going to be restricted to if you will, small areas, areas that require population management. So I think there's a discussion to be had into the future about defining what captive or controlled or managed populations are, but I think it's a vital role and it will take everybody working together across all these different organisations and industries to really see sustainability for a lot of species. So uh, pivoting off of that, you mentioned that you are the now manager of the Blue Iguana Project. So you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the basics of the blue iguana, Seclura lewisii, and uh, I guess how they're faring in the wild, like what's their threats to the face and why they're such a great optimistic story for conservation. Yeah, of course. So Seclura lewisii is obviously a rock iguana. They're endemic to just Grand Cayman. For a long time, they were thought to be a subspecies of the Cuban iguana, so they were Cyclora nubila lewisii, but they're now their own species since 2014. They are a really interesting species and a great example of not really paying attention to the species has nearly gone. Um, the earliest records of the species speak about the fact that there was a blue lizard here, but no one really eats them anymore because there's not enough of them left to hunt. So from the earliest records of them being here, they've been in low numbers as far as we've recorded. Um, but it was really in the early 1990s that conservationists and people on Ireland started noticing that maybe there was a problem um, with this species and that their numbers weren't so great. And a conservationist who moved here called Mr. Frederick J. Burton um, founded the Blue Iguana Recovery Programme and really was the person who really championed, although some people had thought that he was really the man who single-handedly kind of went, no, we, you know, we need to do something in the situation. It's far worse than we thought. Original surveys were really low, but then the real moment, I guess, was in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, when um, the IUCN Iguana Specialist Group came here for a meeting and surveys 
were conducted on the population, and that's when this staggeringly low number of less than 25 animals was discovered that the population was further declining, and that really sparked into action the recovery efforts for the species, bringing them into captivity, which at the time was quite a daunting prospect because there was very little known about this species, but any of the cyclor, you know, this is one of the longest running cyclora breeding programs. There wasn't very much known about them. The early days of keeping them, you know, the diets was dog food, cages, the challenges that projects go through. So it was a real pioneering effort at the time. And then over the years has led to them successfully achieving their original objective, which was to successfully manage the captive breeding program to show no inbreeding from such a small number of founders um, and to manage a program and bring the wild population to the thousandth animal being released, which was achieved in 2018. Um, and one thing that this program is, is a really good example of the importance of long-term collaborations. So we spoke about the importance of it, but we've been very fortunate to have lots of long-term partners, whether it be the government here, the Department of Environment, the Cayman Islands, um, WCS, the World Conservation Society or Bronx Zoo, their vet team has supported this program for over 20 years, giving them one of the largest databases anywhere in the world on cyclora health, which is quite remarkable. And the San Diego Zoo's geneticist, Dr. Tandero Grant, she led the program for the population management. And again, you know, the fact that there's been no inbreed in our population looks so genetically good for so few founders is just testimony to how important that partnership's been and there's been loads of other partners who've done genetic work assisted with research but it's a really great example to show that these core long-term partnerships and funding support is really really key and that kind of brings us to modern day really so we we've got that number back and in some ways you kind of think well there you go job's done but that's not the situation unfortunately for anyone interested if you check out um, blue iguana conservation you will see links to our five-year species action plan we've just published um the executive summary there will give a nice summary of everything I'm saying now. It also gives you the ambition and the plan that we have for the next five years, bringing together all the expertise from the project and other international partners who've worked with similar species that fed in. So it's a great guidance document for anyone interested in a bit more to read. But in summary, basically the situation is that we have our captive breeding head start facility, our breeding's done well. The animals that we release into the wild, into our three restricted protected areas where they go, um, survive and do breed. But what we are seeing now is ze almost zero or very, very little natural recruitment. So the animals that breed, the wild babies that they produce do not survive um, mm. through to maturity. And that's down to lots of pressures. This species face lots of pressures. They face the pressures of urbanization. They've got pressures from that we bring with us as well in regards to roads, in regards to general killing they also have the issue with invasive species is a major one so whether that be green iguanas which can certainly carry whether they were the source we don't know but carry a bacterial disease that kills the blue iguanas which is a major challenge for us um, but also we have invasive alien vertebrates such as dogs and cats that were brought to the islands as well and although we do have active humane societies and welfare groups here that work with that the feral cat issue in particular, and dogs is still a major challenge and would probably be one of the leading contributors right now to why we don't see growth in the wild population. Um, which means that although it's a remarkable success story, and it really is, um, to get to where we've got to in the last 31 years from where it started, um, really it's kind of at a tipping point now where we all the issues that drove this species towards extinction in the first place are still here 
if not magnified from what they were back then. Um, and whilst conservation breeding is really, really important and is the only reason the species is still here, without working towards fixing those issues, it kind of really is just a plaster over a wound, you know? It buys you time to fix a problem, but it's a never-ending sink if you have to just keep topping up all the time. So it's a really important tool, but it can't be underestimated how important it is now that we take the next steps towards ensuring that we deal with some of these long-term challenges and threats to the iguanas, um, but also that we utilize this population. So for the first time in the history of us working with this species of anyone doing it, we have a wild population again, and a breeding one, and a maturing wild population. And that's opening up lots of new opportunities for science and research that historically just haven't been there, because in all this 31 years we talk about blue iguanas, there's not been a wild population of them. So we're really only now just getting to the time where we've got maturing adult males out in the wild, adult size, not just breeding. When I say mature, often we refer to just the fact that they can breed. Right. But now we're getting real big males. Like we're getting males coming into their peaks and primes. So they should start redefining home range sizes, habitat sizes, nesting um, criteria with our females and priorities and the social interactions and structures that this species may or may not have. Because most of what we estimate, we use other cyclora species to compare. But the habitat remaining here is very different. A lot of the population is forced into secondary habitat because the coastal beach areas they might have resided in have been developed and they're no longer available for them. So there's lots of interesting questions. And I think whatever happens, it's really important that we're out there gathering that data so that we can not just hypothesize what might have caused these declines or problems or challenges, but actually get that data while the population's there and then work our hardest to ensure that we can turn the situation around and start seeing a growing population in the wild. So um, I asked this just because I'm sure there's gonna be someone out there listening that, that's gonna ask this question, but why should they care about the blue iguanas? Um, obviously they're magnificently gorgeous creatures, but why, why should we care that you know we conserve them and stuff? They're, in, they're endemic to Grand Cayman. So from a, a national point of view, I think there should be, and there is, but there's got to be pride in that species because mm -hmm. they can be found nowhere else. So I think that's important. I think that if the last two years, especially haven't taught everybody the importance of the environment and how it links to our health and well-being, then um, I don't know what will wake most people up. You know, we've seen now wherever people sit on discussions or arguments like way beyond this podcast, but you see the importance that for our own health, mental health, every type of health, the environment and the natural world is important. And the more species we remove from that delicate web, the more problems we have. So, and the truth is we don't really know what the effects of removing blue iguanas completely from the ecosystem would be, but it's not something I want to trial. It's not mm. something that I think people should be keen for. Um, and a lot of the issues that face the blue iguana are fixable. They're, they can be done with effort, with conservation action, with funding, with support we can make those changes. And I think it's a dangerous precedent to decide to not do that with the species. And if we can't make them battles happen here, then I would be really, really concerned for the future of most islands, most projects, and certainly a lot of the West Indies rock iguanas, I think it would be a disaster. So I think people should be involved, should be excited whether they're from Cayman or whether they're passionate reptiles. You know, this is a species we can actively save. An example of a almost the hopeful story that it's never too late. This is about as close to never too late as you can get that this species went. Um, and it's being turned around, turned around by all the reasons that we all talk about. Um, 
conservation breeding, got reintroduction programs, research, education. It, it ticks all the boxes, and I think it needs to be a project people get behind. And like you say, they're also a bright blue lizard, and I don't think they can be anything much cooler than <laughs> an adult male blue iguana. It's got to be right up there with everything I've worked with there. Some days I still walk in and go, wow, they kind of look photoshopped. So right. um, and for anyone who's worked with Cyclora in general, I don't even just say blues, but they are just these fantastically personable animals that have real characters, individuality. Um, they're a beautiful species and you know they've got as much right to be here as any of these box list species that people, like pandas or tigers or the things people instantly can't imagine a world without. Well, I think the same for blue iguanas and I think and it takes people like this podcast, the voice of people listening to really be the champions to make sure that people come around to that way of thinking. Absolutely. The um, So how do you, with, with such, when they were with so low numbers, how did you deal with like the genetic aspect, making sure that that was still, um, you, I mean, you weren't having any problems with like genetics, you weren't muddying the genetics or anything like that? Uh, no, not at all. We, like I say, um, full credit there has to go to the people that were managing it over the years, in particular Tandora Grant in San Diego. She's done an incredible job managing the population, mm. along with our geneticists who worked with it. A lot of care and attention has gone into not only to reduce any impact, if any, of the inbreeding might have, but to preserve as much of that genetic founder representation as we can. Uh, there's been a lot of work and research and money and effort been put in over the years and recent research shows that that's paid off and that actually we've preserved as much of that genetic line as we can through careful captive breeding monitoring looking at those genes um, and a lot of effort hard work heartache all of it um, but it just goes to show it can be done um, it takes a lot of commitment dedication frustration not cutting corners just to get numbers it's been a real labor of love but it just goes to show it can work and um yeah, there's no, there's no easy answer to that. And I'm not a geneticist in my true essence. I can read it and understand it, but it would be probably doing a discredit to just how impressive what has been done is for me to try to explain it. Yeah. Um, from my element, I wouldn't do that. If um, you ever get a chance to get Tandora on, I can't recommend it enough. Um, the work she's done across lots of projects is really something quite inspiring. And um, it's a real challenge what they've done. It shouldn't be underestimated just because we don't necessarily see effects of inbreeding depression in reptile species as you might in other species doesn't mean it's something we should be aiming for and for projects to to not with so few animals i think it's an example to everybody that if we manage our populations properly we can maintain genetic integrity so that's really important so you mentioned that uh one of the threats facing blue iguanas is invasive green iguanas so like other than potentially carrying diseases uh where some other threats and challenges that these invasive green iguanas pose to native blue iguanas? Yeah, so um, there's competition for them. So obviously the population of green iguanas is much, 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 much bigger than that of the blue iguanas. Um, substantially, for instance, at one point, the population of green iguanas had risen to over a million animals here on Cayman. Wow. Um, which for a small island is a, is a huge population. We actually have an active culling program for them set up by the Department of Environment, which has been going on a number of years and done a remarkable job at reducing those numbers. Um, so yeah, competition for food, for nesting, habitat for resources is always a threat. But um, if any of you follow the project, follow rock iguanas, you'll know that a number of years ago on the sister islands with the sister islands rock iguana, Cayman nubilla caymanensis, um, there was hybridization event between green iguanas and the sister islands rock iguana which before that we didn't necessarily think scientifically possible across genus breeding and that 
the defense of what it did. Well, so why we've never recorded it with Blue Iguanas, there is now a threat that potentially it is possible that Blue Iguanas and Green Iguanas could hybridize. Now, whether the offspring of those would be fertile, we, we don't have those answers, but um, that's a, a smaller threat, but it's certainly a threat that needs to be considered. And then, as you mentioned, pathogens and disease is always a risk with any introduced species. Um, the green iguanas, we do not know if they brought it here, but there's very well published now about a helicobacter issue, a bacterial issue disease in blue iguanas that is fatal to them. Um, and we know the green iguanas can carry this and they are likely one source, if not the source. We haven't got the evidence yet to fully say, but they're definitely able to harbor this bacteria and not kill them. And we would imagine be able to transmit that to blue iguanas. So, or certainly are one form of it. And it's a huge problem for us because it, kills blue iguanas very, very quickly. And it's rather asymptomatic. Usually by the time you're seeing symptoms, you have a very sick animal. Um, so treatment for it in captivity is possible, but treatment in the wild, um, the likelihood is the animal will probably be dead by the time we found it, unless we were lucky enough to find it. Um, so it's a huge concern for us. You know, like they're the threats that we know of as well. So um, invasive species pose many, but you know, the green iguanas are beautiful animals, but unfortunately they shouldn't be here. Um, and we've got to work towards protecting our endemics. Otherwise, if we're not careful, all we'll be left with is green one. We were talking, we had another guest on here, and we were talking about um, an idea. I don't I don't know if this is possible, so I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. Because, you know, South, in South Florida, we have a problem with a lot of green iguanas down here, too. Um, I was talking to another guest. We were talking, would it be possible to, like, take the, to catch the green iguanas and move them to their natural range? Or um, is that something that would cause issues instead of like just culling them? Yeah, I, th I think that's multi -bested That the answer to that question. I think that firstly, that would be a, a, a huge human resource um, effort that would be required. Um, I'm not even convinced even if you put all the resources in, you would necessarily on an island as complicated as this or complex be able to catch every iguana. And it only takes to miss a few. Uh, the financial implications, if that was to be considered, I think would be, well, astronomical. I wouldn't even mm. want to look at how that would be. But I guess, and this is only a personal opinion, but I guess my major concern with it would also be the impact of what you're moving back to the range country as well in regards to disease. Just because these animals came from somewhere, a lot of the green iguanas wouldn't of either in their time, but I also worry about the pathogens and infections you could spread back, which actually, although it may seem like a great idea, um, even in small numbers of animals that are well screened, um, I think that would be a huge risk. But to translocate the volume of animals you would be talking about, I think would be colossal. And my concern with reptiles, and I know it shared across many, is that um, we, we're still finding out so little, we know so little, and we're still finding out so much about disease mm. and pathogens and bacteria and parasites and everything to do with veterinary health that I always worry that it's not really the diseases we know about that are the problem, it's the ones we don't. So I actually think it could be an example of meaning well, but doing doing more harm than good. And But it's a really difficult debate and an emotional topic, you know, as a reptile lover, I've always found the concept of calling a reptile to be really, really difficult. And, you know, it's definite turmoil for me. And, you know, I find, you know, obviously when we talk about mammals like rodents and stuff, you know, obviously kind of people are a little less unfair, but as a reptile lover, I find it really difficult. But sometimes heart can't rule head um, and you have to look at the impact in the bigger picture and, you know, look at the methods of that and obviously ensure it's done humanely and all the things you'd imagine. But sometimes you have to bite the bullet really and accept that the conservation efforts for green iguanas need to be focused in their range. Um, 
So yeah, I hope that kind of answers it. If you had one in green iguana show up in quarantine or come in or you could stop it at kind of source, then I think there would be potentially more argument for um, sending it back. Though, again, I would really, really caution to take consideration that we don't really know the routes of transit for a lot of animals, what the species they might come into contact with. So from a disease and biosecurity point of view, I think that always has to be the forefront of our mind is uh, being able to control that. But, you know, and there's other roles, you know, whether the animal ended up in a, a zoo or a collection to talk about or have a value, then yeah. But I think it should always just be done cautiously. It's always a consideration on the table, but like I say, I think it comes with high risk and needs to be thought about. So uh, you mentioned that another big threat in terms of invasive species are cats and dogs. And I have read a few other Sikulura uh, conservation efforts, just how destructive those species can be. So can you give us like an idea of just what the potential threat that those uh, species pose to blue iguanas? Yeah, of course, I can I can certainly try to do that. Um, the dog issue, I think, is one worth starting on. So we don't really have a particularly feral dog problem here on Cayman. Just the odd feral dog, but most of the dog that cause issues here are actually just poorly managed pets. Wow. Um, they owned animals that are just left to roam, um, left out, not managed in yards that keep them in. Um, it's a very small island for anyone who's ever been here. So finding your dog again, if it goes off or you let it out for the weekend, it's not that difficult to do. Um, but those dogs can cause a lot of destruction. Um, the dogs do tend to be the biggest threat for our adult iguanas. The blue iguanas have really evolved to have no natural predator when they're adults, and you can really see it. There's just no instinct to run away, none of the behaviors that we see in other species. They just kind of sit there and head bob and get attacked. Um, so that can be a common occurrence for us, especially with adult males. The adult male blues do not really tend to, to run away from anything, and they just tend to fit. I think one of the most frustrating things is the dogs often fatal injuries on the iguanas, but never actually usually eat them. So it's usually just an attack or huh. play gone wrong or any of those things. And usually you find injured iguanas not um, not being consumed. Cats is a different story. There is a lot of feral cats on the island um, and they do consume iguanas right up to certain age categories, probably belong, but certainly under 800 grams, cats are a major concern. So probably the first two, three years of an animal's life, these things can have hugely detrimental effects. Um, the feral population isn't 100% known, but it's certainly larger than it was originally estimated. Um, and they're just such efficient predators, you know. Um, they're really, really, really good at what they do. There is no breathing out of them. There is no feed the stations. There's no trap you need to release. There's nothing that takes away that predatory instinct. There's been so much work done on the impact of feral cats around the world at the moment. And some of these studies have shown that even fat house cats do hunt. So any of this, you know, if you feed them, they're going to be fine. Maybe you reduce it slightly, but you certainly do not stop it. Um, but um, they have a huge impact, but they're a really emotive subject. You know, um, they really do split the crowd, even among conservationists. I mean, feral cats are a huge subject because a lot of people feel very strongly about any form of controls with them. Um, a lot of people, because they're a pet species for most people, people get really motivated that they see their cat at home as the feral cats, and um, which just isn't the case on any front. Um, these animals, let's take away the effects they're having in the environment and look at it from a species point of view um, and an individual point of view. A lot of these feral animals have really, really difficult lives. A lot of them are riddled with shorter lifespans, pretty horrendous conditions that I can assure you, I don't know many pet cat owners that would allow their animals to live in that condition. 
um, and some of the health issues they have and diseases are really bad. So I think, again, it goes back to like we were talking earlier about opinions. It's about basing them in facts, really, and not assuming um, that somebody feels a certain way just because I'm an animal lover through and through. I absolutely love all animals, to be honest with you, big, small, cats, dogs, the work. So the idea of any animal being controlled or euthanized, I think it's a really sad situation. Um, a lot of people don't feel it's their invasive predators for faults either. You know, they're like, oh, people did it. I, I don't think anyone really disputes that. But unfortunately, that's an error that has been made and people have done. And now, sadly, it's up to people to fix that. Um, so I, I think, again, it can get caught up in this never-ending cycle of who's to blame and when actually the conversation needs to be about, one, how do we deal with the problem? But more importantly than just dealing with it is how do we move forward in the future so that it doesn't happen again? Um, so that can be better biosecurity controls at borders, better regulations and laws. So they're only as good as what they are in force. So it's okay writing laws, but if no one's enforcing them, then that kind of a pointless activity. But also, you know, education and culture as well. Let's teach about spay new and release at the beginning. Let's talk about responsible pet ownership. Um, you know, really getting into communities and people and changing mindsets towards the impact that not properly managing your pets of any type, whether you have an exotic reptile or you have a cat or a dog, and um, that responsible pet ownership can have detrimental effects if it's not done properly, not just to your pet, but also to the wider environment. So I think it's a multi-leveled approach, but unfortunately, um, even with all the education and systems in the world, a lot of places now have problems that we have to actively deal with, um, but we, you know, we won't get on top of it. So you said that the, the the adults will a lot of times just sit there. Um, do the do the babies still get predated on more than the adults, or is it kind of um, equal? Or what would you say which group gets predated on more? Uh, the baby, the hatchlings for sure. So um, the adults is still pretty rare that we know of. Um, so we always define our mortalities as recorded mortalities because we always allow for this pocket of animals that we don't see when things happen to them. So I think that's really important to state that. By no means are we saying that we, you know, we see every animal um, and every mortality event. But generally speaking, you know, we don't see hatchlings. We see them every year for a couple of months when the hatching season starts, and then within kind of three, four months, you ain't seen a hatchling. And the yearling to subadult range is an age category we do not record in the wild, um, or certainly not very often. So, um, yeah, they're they're massively heavily predated. I think they have quite high predation anyway. Their natural predator, the Cayman racer snake, you know, they are really efficient predators. Snakes don't predate too long on hatchlings and iguanas, but in the time period they do, they're really good at what they do. Um, so you already get quite high mortality rates within a clutch anyway, because of that. So then if you add the issue of feral cats or other challenges on top, then you really haven't got many iguanas to lose um, in the first place. Um, but yes, it's certainly, it's certainly a challenge, but each adult you can't impact. So while we might lose Let's just chuck a number out there, 150 more hatchlings, and you think, my, that's big. But actually, in some way, losing 10, maybe let's go for a bad year, 15, that we record adults, which in reality probably puts it 20 plus mature animals, that probably actually has more detriment to the effects. So every time we lose these big adult males, you know, that's it's a real blow to the program. So um, I think that it's really hard to measure which one's got worse effect. Um, and we have a very sensitive population structure as well. So we haven't got many young animals. So if kind of aging population, if you keep taking out those top tiers, then it could cause real issues. So although we don't lose as many, um, it's still far too many adults to be losing for pointless reasons. 
You also mentioned um, human activity affects them. Can you kind of talk about like what kind of activity is affecting them? And then also um, what has a bigger impact on them, human activity or predation? Um, okay, yeah, so human activity is generally like urbanization I, I'm referring to. Um, we do have some instances of road kills. We have animals killed on the road. And um, most of our road kill though, to specify, isn't necessarily actually on the road. Um, mm. itself often it's on grass verges when the grass verges here aren't maintained or been cut yet they grow a lot of weeds and a lot of those weeds make up the iguana's natural diet so the iguana's sitting in breeding season absolutely love a good browse on the side of the, the road verges sometimes two to three feet off the road and a lot of our hits are actually that distance and people have swerved to hit them um, mm. now the motivation behind that Again, I can't presume to dictate what people feel. Some belief is that it could be misidentification for green iguanas, and so people feel it's an invasive species and have tried to hit it, because obviously, as you will know, blue iguanas aren't always blue. Um, the skin pigmentation, certainly on wet or cold days, these animals are really dark brown, black. If you don't know what you're looking at, then it would be feasible possibly to misidentify them. Um, but I think some of it's desensitization because there's been iguana calls here over the years. I think people have kind of just seen iguanas as pests. So reptiles don't always have the best. And then I think there's probably a category of people that just don't care either. And I think you've got to be honest and transparent with that. I'm sure there's a pocket that sit there that really aren't wildlife fans and it's, you know, it's irrelevant to them. Um, but development is another one, you know, people, you know, this island's developing really, really fast. Um, land prices are really, really high which is good in a way because it stops people buying, but in another sense, um, if you're able to get millions of dollars for small acres, then that's gonna put a lot of pressure on making it really difficult for people to protect areas for conservation purposes. Um, because if you can get offered 10, 15 million for your land, um, it's really, really hard. And I think it would be really hypocritical to sit here and say what you would do in that situation if you had a small acreage of land and managed to get 10, 15 million for it, you would, you know, it would probably make you think. Um, and for a lot of people out here, poverty is always relative, but, you know, there is levels of poverty here as well. Um, not as extreme as some parts of the world, but no doubt there is. So that's a lot of money no matter where you are. So I think that's, you've got to understand the drivers behind it as well. So, yeah, they're the major threats, really. It's people's actions in regards to development, urbanization, the roads, and just a general movement rather than specifically people going hunting. There's no evidence of that anymore. Only anecdotal stuff in the box, but there isn't really anyone alive, even if you go to some of the elder generation that's been interviewed over the years. So 100 years back now, with some of the 90 plus that we've interviewed and um, no one's ever reported knowing anyone hunting them. No one really recalls blue iguanas. Very few, a few farmers out in the countryside have seen them, but I don't think that people have been a problem in either way. One of the concerns that's often stated here is to people to collect them for the pet trade. Mm. Um, but we have no evidence at the moment that um, collection for the pet trade is a threat to them. Like it hasn't been put forward for other species. Predominantly that's likely due to the fact there really hasn't been any blue iguanas to collect um, on any form of scale. Um, and also, you know, obviously there's no permits for that. So it would be very difficult to get a pure and, you know, there's a lot of cyclora being bred already in the pet trade. There's hybrid Lewisite, so most of, pretty much all of the cyclora being bred that are sold as blue iguanas are often hybrids between the Sister Islands rock iguana and the blue iguana. Um, even the really, really blue ones, there's some that we've genetic tested because they're so, um, they look so characteristically a blue, but actually they're hybrids. So that's why it's really important to do the genetic work. 
And but I don't really think that's a, a massive threat for them at the moment. Maybe it will evolve into one as things go. But hopefully, by the point there's tons of blue iguanas around for people to collect, then the population would be in a healthy place. So um, yeah, mainly it's about development that's their biggest threat through habitat loss and then obviously the complications that come with that with cars roads which then give access to the invasive predators like dogs and cats more and it's always a knock-on effect for all these things so. so this may not be your particular area of expertise but i'd be curious if you if you had any thoughts on this um so the a, a large thing with when it comes to conservation is um uh, being able to balance um uh, um, human progression with, you know, making sure we're not taking up a bunch of habitat from animals and whatnot and stuff. So I think that like an island is, a, is kind of like a miniature version of that, of like, you know, as you were saying, developments are happening, but you also want to make sure that you're not taking up all the habitat for these animals. How do you balance something like that? Okay. Yeah, I, th I think that, again, is another really complex question that I'm Absolutely, sure there's lots yeah. of debate around. Um, and I'm, it's very um, area-specific. It depends geographically where you're working. It's right. cultural to the local area. It's also very species-specific. Like, I don't think there's one answer that fits all. But mm -hmm. when we look to this island, for instance, and the blue iguanas, I think obviously protecting enough habitat remaining for them is really, really key. But I think one thing people sometimes fall into the trap of is almost an attitude of to stop all development um stop any development or it's not a win and you know that may be the the goal you know if we had a magic wand um, it might be something that you would want to try to achieve um but realistically that's just not a realistic model it's never going to happen um especially on an island here where only 12 percent of the land is protected the rest of it is privately owned and there's absolutely no chance that that would be happened and where we've got an area where so much of the land is so expensive that to buy enough land if you will to project what would be suitable habitat for the long-term sustainable population it's probably not feasible i wouldn't know, like to know how many millions but it would be a considerable sum of money that that would take to get anywhere near that so for us we're looking very much down about well how do we build more how do we develop more sustainably so mm -hmm. is there a way for the two to coincide so if you're going to develop properties you're going to develop areas can it be done more green in the sense that can you leave wild areas so we started an initiative out here called blue iguana gardens where we work with the local community this actually came driven by a need to feed the captive facility so one of our biggest threats to the captive population is that there isn't many wild food source areas left to collect natural diet for them we're very lucky at the minute we feed no produce at all everything we collect we have 150 identified plant species and we collect it every day from the wild 15 kilos of food across those different species to feed the captive iguanas. Um, that used to be quite an easy task, but over the years it's become more and more difficult as more development happens and these natural wild areas and beaches and places where all these weeds used to grow are disappearing. So one of the things we did is we're trying to encourage the local community to designate areas, give up land, plant up schools, businesses, properties with food plant sources that the iguanas can eat so that we can harvest that food to feed the iguanas. But also through that, we're also encouraging that most of the plants that they eat are endemic to the Cayman Islands. So we're also encouraging a resurgence in native natural areas, which also has a knock-on effect for birds, for insect populations, um, and for protecting some of the plant species, which are actually almost more endangered than the iguanas at times. 
Um, so it kind of has that link, but it also gets people thinking about natural spaces and actually that you can have a beautiful home, but you can leave an area of ironshore rocks, natural vegetation where iguanas can coexist. Um, because the blue iguanas actually aren't a very pest species. They don't have a lot of the behavioral traits. People get frustrated with the green iguanas. So green iguanas love eating trees. You put a green iguana in a tree, it's going to be bare in a few days. Um, they're also pretty good fan of your pool as well. Um, so they tick all the boxes that certainly a lot of people here do not want animals in their pool, in, in their plants. The blue iguanas do not do that. They can swim, they don't swim, too much effort. Um, they don't really eat leaves off trees. They wait for them to fall and flowers so they're a great coexister the problem is that if you have pets and you don't manage them the blue iguanas will get themselves killed in that situation but there's certainly a species that can coexist with people well they don't really pose a threat um you have to watch them if they get a bit food orientated and you feed them regularly and they can be a bit foody especially the males but generally speaking they're harmless there's no known pathogen they have that passes to us so they're a great example of this and i for me that's the future it's working with local landowners, communities, legacies, coming up with conservation agreements where land can be protected or houses can be built where a certain amount of it has to be left or people leave that. That's going to be the future of creating these spaces because for me, stopping development is, you know, it's just not a feasible model. It may not even be the right one in a lot of cases because, you know, people have to live and grow. But I think there's got to be a future where wildlife and people can coexist better and our job for each species and some species obviously if you've got a species that can harm people or kill them then coexistence and human wildlife conflict is a much more complex story but when you've got a species like the blue iguana i think they could be another great fantastic model to really show a sustainable model for allowing species to live long alongside a more sustainable development so uh going off that what are some of the primary food sources that these iguanas feed on like what's what will make up the bulk of their diet most of their diet is green leaf vegetation so as i say we've identified about 150 species that the iguanas can eat so far through our studies though we hope to increase that list ever more through radio tracking work but also through working on projects with eDNA where we can test the iguana species and use barcoding to look at what species of plants the iguanas have been eating because there's probably lots of species that we don't see the meat that they may eat. Um, and obviously seasonally that changes massively. Um, but there's a few common ones. So Moringa, we have papaya leaves. They have Norni or Indian mulberry as it's called. It's actually not native to here, but there's another species within the same family called yellow root that is. So sometimes we do that. We're not using actual native, but we're using the same family and looking at that. Um, so, yeah, we try at the moment to feed a natural diet as much as we can. Um, we feed flowers, fruits, especially local fruits, like sea grapes and things that are seasonal. Um, and then in the wild, invertebrates make up a part of their diet as well. They certainly like caterpillars and some of the other small items. We struggle to feed that in enough quantity for our animals at the captive facility, but we do offer it where possible. Um, and then, yeah, we have got records as well of them being opportunistic. So they certainly eat any carrion they might come across. And last year, we actually recorded and saw and are publishing one of our cyclora eating chickens, um, hunting and mm. eating chicks, um, fully alive, fully happy little chicks, and the cyclora were predating them, which is interesting from multiple points of view, that one, that they clearly don't just eat carrion, but also it could be another discussion about introduced species. So 
with a lot of chickens and no one really considers them a feral issue. Cockerels are annoying in the morning when they wake you up, but no one's thought of it from a species perspective. But actually, we're altering these animals' diets now. They're getting access to things that maybe don't make up part of it. So it's an interesting discussion from that. But yeah, our females during breeding season, they're all about eating chickens. It's, it's a really interesting behavior. So, yeah, so is that, um, so do you think that's something where it's, it's actually their diet being altered? Or do you think that's something that maybe they've, they've always done, that they've predated on something if they've had the opportunity to? I imagine they've always predated on things if they had the opportunity to, to be honest. By the alteration, I mean that chickens aren't natural here. So we've okay, introduced yeah. them and we've never really looked. And again, I know I must sound like paranoid about diseases and whatnot, but um, when you're talking about a species that, a natural part of the species diet or not natural to the island you feel, well we've never really looked at chickens for what pathogens what problems they might carry because we never considered them part of the iguanas diets um, and i think it just goes to show you don't know what you can introduce that may be harmless but actually can form a part of a diet so but i don't think chickens are making up a substantial part of the diet but it's just an interesting observation like you say um we're getting more iguanas now so we record things that we haven't seen before and it opens questions like you bring up about, well, is this more normal than we thought? You know, is predation on bird species, on snakes, on, we know, the crabs and other invertebrates. Like, there could be a lot more to this species diet than we've recorded in the past, which is fascinating, really. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is the old saying that there is no such thing as a true vegan in nature. So, I guess it just goes to show it. <laughs> there is... um. Yeah, an example, there's this uh, group that was said that there was no Eastern equine encephalitis um, until they started to test for it. Then all of a sudden there was Eastern equine encephalitis there. So, um, but so the, I, is it, um, so you, there's a big problem with feral cats and with invasive iguanas and stuff, green iguanas. Um, is it, is there, um, is it possible at all to ever like fully or mostly eradicate them? And if not, what is the best way to control their population? Is it just culling or, or are there other options that that could be explored? Like how do you how do you manage those? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. In regards <laughs> to green iguanas, um, I think it would be it's gonna be really difficult and be a really yeah. assertive effort to truly ever eradicate them. Um but it potentially could be done um, with sustained effort, but it's going to take that because it's easy to reduce the number. Well, easy, he says. It's not. It's achievable to reduce the numbers, but actually the more you reduce, the harder the effort becomes because those last section of animals are going to be the really difficult ones. They're not your animals sat out on the road that are easily cold. They're the ones off the beaten track and only mm -hmm. takes a few. And, and cats and dogs, the answer is yes. I, I don't know how it does it and politically and how we get to that stage here, but there's plenty of examples. And I think New Zealand, the world leaders at the moment yeah. in predator-free. If anyone's not checked out some of the predator-free 2050 stuff, go and see it. Like what they're doing is incredible. And more incredible is the statistics behind what they've done. So when they've removed everything from rats, because you know, people don't think much about rats as an invasive species, but they have a huge impact, not just on species, but when we look at fauna and the vegetation they affect seed dispersal so you get a whole different change in vegetation um from removing species like that so i would encourage people to check out some of the examples of the work being done in the overseas territory some of the inspiring stuff they want to do on goat island near jamaica at these full small island 
or simple systems being eradicated of invasive species and then restocked. It's it's quite inspiring, and I think it drives everyone to think we can do it. But um, it's going to be a long journey for us. But the advantage we have is the species we have are controllable. They can be controlled. But if you look to some species that have been introduced in places or some diseases or species like mongoose and stuff, the challenge becomes even higher, almost impossible on mainland to be able to do that. So I think we should seize that opportunity and not introduce anything else. Um, and try so i think it can be done but it's a huge financial burden both from a practical point of view but also a human resources point of view it's it's really really difficult um and it varies across the world on humane methods and what deems humane and what systems right. you can have and one method doesn't really suit all so it's a huge challenge but um it can be done um and yeah there's lots published by our department of environment here in the cayman islands about the green iguana work so I would, I would, if anyone's interested, have a look, see what they've published. There's papers out on what they've done. Um, I know it could be a hard read for some people who may not be into it, but it gives a lot of evidence about the problems and you can see the challenges and the scale of what they're doing. And like I say, when you talk about population that was well on its way to 2 million, um, it gives you an idea why there was control measures needed. Absolutely, yeah. So Ernest uh, wants to know about different species of chlora, but let's talk about how much of a threat like invasive goats were on some of these islands to the native sakura species and i'm guessing they're not as big a problem for blue iguanas but what sort of threat do goats pose to if not blue iguanas then other species of sakura yeah i i think i think you can wrap it up within the invasive species argument really the changes in things like habitat vegetation distribution disease risks and obviously no cyclora is eating goats so that's good and goats don't tend to eat cyclora so you know it's harmonious in that sense but i think it's looking beyond that what the impacts are we don't have a real we don't have a goat issue here he says touch wood and um, we haven't yet got a goat <laughs> issue here that i'm aware of so um not something we need but yeah I, th I think we've got to look at that holistically what the effect of it introducing any species into an ecosystem it's not meant to be and not mistake the fact that we don't necessarily see an issue that mean that there isn't one um issues can take time to develop you know i think that you know, when people go, oh, Florida is incredible, you know, look at all these introduced species and everyone gets along and there's, you know, there's hardly any problems. But, you know, I think sometimes we haven't looked and we don't necessarily know how to record the changes or we don't have the data originally to then say what the changes will be. And some changes take generations of an animal to show problems. So I think um, we should always be looking at the damage to introducing species to any ecosystem they're not meant to be in can have. Because even if there's positive effects at the beginning, there's knock-on effects. And if we start getting into... Bacteria, we start getting into invertebrate populations. We have no idea what species do to these populations and the importance that they play. So I would err on caution for anyone doing reintroductions that it's so complicated. Obviously, it's vital in some areas, but um, species can do a lot of harm even when you don't necessarily record it or perceive that they are. So I actually want to jump back to the, uh, the, the iguanas eating the chicken thing again. So obviously you do like when you find like a, a dead one or, or whatever you do necropsy on it and stuff. Um, are there in other than like observing them eating it? Are there any other ways that you guys uh, 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 keep track of what their diet is? So at the moment, no, it's all observational. Um, we've never found chicken parts and we haven't really searched feces for it, but it's not something we've recorded. We've never recorded it at a PM. Um, they have seen bird bones and bones of other species in iguana PMs and fecal matter before, but we just assumed that was carrion that you come across and it might well have been, 
Um, so no, as far as actively filming or hunting or seeing an active chase and them actually predating on a regular basis, then that's that's new to us. Um, but we are always trying to monitor more what the diet is. And like I say, we're hoping at the moment to work with our colleagues in Mississippi to develop eDNA techniques to look at um, using genetic barcoding to look at what the diet might contain as well. So mm. we can analyze fecal samples and use barcodes to be able to at least go to family level of what these animals might be eating. So we're hoping that might open up a whole new world of yeah. discovery what's in the diet. And also in the wild now, we've been evolving and adapting our methods. We used to do a lot of in-person monitoring and surveys and distance sampling techniques to estimate population. And we're now trying to do a remove, well, a move away to adapt to new techniques as well now using remote monitoring for those listening camera traps, basically, to be able to gather data for us. It gives us better population estimates, hopefully in the long run, kind of less labor intensive from a doing the surveys point of view, but more labor intensive from data. But actually, it's opening up kind of a secret window, if you will, for a better world into what's going on in these reserves when we're not there influencing it. You know, we're seeing courtship behavior, we're seeing new males in areas we never knew, we're getting an idea of what threats these animals have, where they nest, how frequently they visit the spot, what they eat. So um, the camera trap work is fascinating. It really has given us an insight um, into what's happening in the wild that we've never had. Um, so we're very, very excited for that and some of the publications that will come from that over the next couple of years. Um, I've seen them like mount cameras on monitor lizards. Is that something that's like a, a possibility that you do with uh, iguanas, the blue iguanas? Uh, I, I guess it's a possibility. My The major concern for us with that would be the topography of the areas that our iguanas live. Um, they live in, I don't know if any of you've seen it, but they haven't, we have kind of cast iron iron shore, it's called, it's cast rock um, that they go down into burrow and it's very overgrown vegetation where they live, really impassable in parts. Um, so my concern would be it getting caught. Yeah. Um, and they're very, they, they, the blues like to fight and squeeze through tight places. And I would have some concerns, but um, if there was a reason we could do it, and we have a semi-habituated population in the botanic gardens and also the captive facility that we could do studies with. But um, as far as what it would tell us much, I'm not sure for our species what it would tell us. Um, the radio telemetry and radio tracking stuff is where our excitement really lies. Let's start to get an idea on what... Um, how, what distances these species travel and for these unknown age groups can we get an idea what's happening because we know hatchling cyclora have big dispersal areas once they hatch they're off um, and they keep moving for those first bits but how far do they move um how long are they in the trees we know they use the trees to avoid predation but we've got records from this year of five six month old sleeping in burrows on the ground with adult iguanas and using refuge there so there's some super exciting stuff that for our species in particular, we've never had the opportunity to study. I've never been there. Um, and now they are. So yeah, it's honestly, what I think one of the most exciting things for me is that 31 years of research, probably one of the most well-studied cyclora in the sense of the amount of data and captivity, and we still know so little. Yeah. If anyone ever wanted a baseline that simply breeding an animal does not mean there's such a difference between keeping something alive and breeding and keeping it optimal. Like, yeah, we yeah. can breed cyclora you know, with your eyes closed, you can breed them, but actually taking a hatchling and turning it into a healthy adult with the correct muscle tone, with the fitness levels they require, with the complexity, it's just such a, it's such an interesting challenge. And actually it's not until you get animals that aren't breeding and you see seasonal changes that you start thinking, well, what are the triggers that are making this species breed? How do we control it? And like I say, how do we take these animals and keep them long-term? Big difference between keeping short-term 
activity. But if we have to look at activity for years, if a disease outbreak happens or this population becomes solely reliant on a captive population for the next 20 years where we find a problem, could we keep them alive for 20 years in captivity and each generation keep it fit? Um, there's so many fascinating challenges that I think even 31 years on, we still don't know. And I think that's super exciting. And you know, when people kind of go, oh, what reptile do you want to work with? Or do you want a home? Or people talk about beginner species or people kind of get bored of species. I think it's it's such a one dimensional, like reading them is one step, but there's something really credible in being able to keep a species from a hatchling right through its whole entire life. Like you, know, you, you guys keep and speak to people do. There's very few people that have actually had their animals from birth through to the end of their actual natural right. lifespan. It's really unique. There are people that do it very well, but very few actually. A lot of people never, they, even their animals don't get there or they don't stay with them that long. So, you know, I think long-term studies are really, really, really important. I might. Uh, you got any other questions, Matt? Um, no, I think I think that covers um, all my questions. Um, did you have anything you wanted to say to end with it or anything? Uh, Luke, sorry. Oh, sorry. I um, <laughs> no, I, I just want to say thank you, guys. Um, I appreciate the platform to be able to come on here and talk about the project. Absolutely, I yeah. think it's really, really important. I welcome the the discussion and debate on all the issues. I think the only way to move forward across all the communities to start everybody from every community talking, working together. There's not one solution that fits. There's not one shoe that fits. It's going to take uh, us all working together and all these different entities and solutions to, to find solutions for all species, including ours. Um, thank you to everyone listening. If you sat through the whole thing and listened to me <laughs> dribble on, I do appreciate it. If you are interested in more, then follow us on social media at Blue Iguana Conservation. I really recommend it. Do not underestimate the power that just sharing posts and speaking and raising awareness about this species has. Um, we're a small little island, we're tourist dependent. If the international spotlight is on us and on this species, then it carries a lot of weight. Please don't underestimate the power of a Facebook post. It can be really powerful if everyone shares it. So um, please feel free to get in touch as well with the program. If you've got any questions, um, we welcome it. We're always open for discussion. But yeah, thank you to you both for this platform and for the opportunity to meet you and chat to you and all your listeners. I really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I really, I actually really appreciate it too. I, um, that's what I want to do is conservation work with reptiles, especially like with here in South Florida, we have the, the Burmese Python and the, the green iguanas and everything. So that's something that I'm really interested in. And I'm actually in June going to university of Queensland in Australia to get my master's degree. So I'm hoping to get more into like the more ingrained into it and everything. So I really appreciate hearing like what you guys are doing over there and like how, how all that works. So I find that super fascinating. So good luck. Enjoy, enjoy the masters. It'll be fun. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming on. No problem. Take care guys. Yeah, you too.